So we are in Daniel chapter number, what chapter? Chapter number three. Daniel chapter number three is where we're at. And we're at the end of the chapter. Uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get through the rest of this chapter today. I've been enjoying Daniel chapter number three, just seeing the way that uh, I think God has a sense of humor. I'm convinced of it. And just the way that God is working through these uh, three Hebrews who decided to take a stand. They uh, decided that they were going to do what was right regardless of the consequences, and God blessed it. And God, in a way, made a fool out of King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful men on the face of the earth at that time, one who thought that he was a god himself. He had even made a an idol there in a means trying to receive worship or trying to create his uh, own religion, if you will, out of uh, his own mind, even if it wasn't a statue of himself. We talked about the statue that he had made there and that the dimensions were not human dimensions unless it was put on some sort of a pedestal because it would have been really tall and skinny, right? But anyway, even if it wasn't a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, if it was a pillar, if it was anything else, uh, it still doesn't change it. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to make his own religion. He is the one that crafted the pillar, not probably literally. I'm sure he wasn't down to the forges and pouring the metal, but uh, he was the one who came up with the idea that he made the, the outline, the rules for worship and how they were to bow down at the, the time that the music played and all these different things. And so I just find that very arrogant on his behalf, thinking that he is able to determine for his entire realm, his entire kingdom, uh, what worship should look like and who they should worship and all these different things. And so God just decides, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you think that you are so powerful, you think you are so smart, well, let me just come in and show you what you actually do know. And he turns everything that Nebuchadnezzar knows upside down. And that's what we've been seeing so far. And so in this, we saw that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, whenever it came time for them to bow down, they refused to bow because they knew God says, thou shalt not bow down to any graven image. And so they didn't do it. They knew the threat was that they would be cast in the burning fiery furnace, and yet they decided that they were going to trust God. We saw last week that whenever Nebuchadnezzar came in and said, I'm going to be generous, I'm feeling a little bit uh, merciful today. I want to give you another opportunity. Maybe you didn't understand. Maybe you didn't hear. But now I'll play the music again. You get another chance to bow down. And they said, we're not careful to answer you. We don't even have to think about this. We're not going to do it because the God that we serve has told us not to. And so they took this stand. Nebuchadnezzar got mad. They said, uh, we're not going to bow down. Our God is able to deliver us. He will deliver us, but if not, still not going to bow. They said we would rather burn than sin against our God. So that's quite the stand to take, isn't it? And I think that's a challenge, a huge challenge for us, because all around us in the world that we live in, there are pressures that we face to bow and to bend. The world would have us to conform. It tells us to march to the beat of its drum. It tells us that uh, we are not to be weird, we're not to be different, that we are not to uh, do anything against the status quo, but instead we are to fit in. And so everywhere we go, there are pressures to fit in. There are pressures to get along with everyone else, to compromise what we believe and what the Bible says just for the sake of acceptance or for the sake of getting along. 
It doesn't matter if you're school age and facing peer pressure or if you're adults and you're going to work and still facing peer pressure. Uh, you get pressure from society, you get pressure from media, you get pressure from friends, you get pressure from everything going on around you, telling you what you should believe, telling you what you should do, telling you why you're wrong, why God is wrong, why they are right. Are we all familiar with these things? We know what this is like. We know what these pressures are. And so whenever all of this comes against us, we need to predetermine. We need to decide ahead of time that no matter what comes our way, we are going to stand with God. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be weird for the sake of being weird. It doesn't mean that we are going to draw lines where God hasn't drawn them just for the sake of being argumentative or different. But instead, we decide to draw the lines where God has. And if God has said it's wrong, it's wrong. If God has said it's right, it's right. If God allows for it, then we're going to take part of it. We saw that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were still part of the government. They were still involved in society, but they were drawing the line whenever it came to violating God's principles. That's where we need to be. We're not to uh, come completely apart from society and build a, a monastery on some remote island. We've seen that happen all over Ireland, right? Try to be like monks back in the the high mountains away from everyone and isolate. God doesn't call us to isolate ourselves, but he does call us to draw a line, differentiate between those things that are holy and profane, the Bible says. And this is what these men have done. And so as a result, they are being put to the test. We said last week, if you take a stand for God, there will be people watching to see the God that you do serve. They will see your consistency or your lack thereof. Because if you go to work, if you go uh, to uh, sports teams, if you go to hobbies and all these different things, any, anywhere you go where people are around you, they are observing you. They are watching you to see if you really do believe what you claim that you do. And so as they were being watched here, whenever this chance came up that most people bowed, almost everyone bowed, they said, let's see if their faith is strong enough to keep them from bowing, and it was. We found also that whenever we stand for that which is right and true and holy, it's going to make enemies. That's one of the reasons they were watching. And so they wanted something to uh, be able to accuse them of. They said, we know that they're not going to outright sin. We know that they're good, obedient citizens. They're not going to break any laws, any just laws. And so they're going to have to find an unjust law for them to break. They're going to have to find something in line with are out of line with scripture for them to find as a violation. That's what they ended up doing. And so they were looking for something where there is a disagreement between their beliefs and between the culture to get them in trouble. And so that's what's going on still to this day. We've seen occasions just like uh, the Christian bakeries that wouldn't bake the, the cake for the, the gay wedding. You remember that? They had a choice. They said, okay, if for any cake that they were making, they could accept or reject it. But whenever society is watching them, whenever they've taken a stand and said, we are Christians, they said, okay, let's see how far their Christian beliefs go. See what we can do with that, right? And so society is trying to test us still to this day. And so whenever those opportunities come or those uh, testings come, are we going to sink or are we going to swim? Are we going to uh, stand or are we going to bow? And so it's a challenge for us today to know what we believe and to stand where the Bible does and trust God with the outcome of it. Okay? 
And so as we come down here today, uh, the Hebrews have been cast in the furnace. Those who cast them in the furnace were burned up, throwing them in. But as soon as the, the three got in the furnace, their bindings was the only thing that burned. They were cast in bound, but as soon as they hit the floor, if you will, as soon as they were thrown in, they were loosed and walking around. And Nebuchadnezzar looked in and he says, did not we cast three men bound into the fiery furnace? And they said, yes, that's what happened. And he says, I see four men and they are loosed and walking around and have no hurt. And the fourth one is like unto the son of God. And so that brings us down to verse number 26. And we'll go ahead and read the remainder of the chapter. There's not very much left here, not a very long portion. But it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, excuse me, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire. Wouldn't that be something to see? Caught into the fire. Here they just come walking out like it's a sunny day. And the princes, governors, and captains, and all the king's counselors being gathered together. Look at what an audience they had, taking all this in. Saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their hair singed, or the hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had hath his excuse me, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they may might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So what we see here is the king has had a huge change, hasn't he? You remember whenever they said up there in verse 17, our God will deliver us. Verse 18, we will not serve your gods. Verse 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, right? He was angry, but his temperament has changed. His attitude has changed. And it says here that he was astonished whenever he looked in. And now as he is talking to them, He's still trying to process. He's still trying to figure out what has just went on because he has never seen it on this manner before. He's never seen a God that actually did something because they've always served false gods. Their religion was powerless. Their religion was man-made. They could change it at their own whims. That's what he was doing with the pillar, right? But this God was able to walk with them through the fire and bring them out unheard. And so his attitude was changed from anger to astonishment. And let me tell you this, I said we'd make enemies if we walk with God, right? We'll make enemies if we take a stand where God does. And whenever we go through the fire, as our enemies are watching, God can use our actions, our responses, our attitudes to change our enemies. 
And what I mean by that, those ones that were so angry with you, whenever you patiently endure tribulation, their countenance toward you will change. As they see you going through those things that were meant to destroy you, and yet you're undestroyed. You go through it and you're not being consumed. You're not being burned up. God can use that even to change your enemies. Remember how the Bible tells us that we are not to avenge ourselves and that we're not to be uh, seeking revenge against our enemies, but instead we're to be kind and gentle toward our enemies and pray for our enemies because in doing so we'll heap coals of fire up on their heads. Remember that passage? And so God has a different way of dealing with people than what mankind does. Because if we would take this from a fleshly point of view, if you were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you were standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and he was making these unjust laws, and he was behaving so childish and irrational, and anger and fury, and throw him in the furnace and all these things, you would probably respond in like manner in anger and fury, in fear, in irrationality, all these different things. Whenever someone does you wrong, what are you supposed to do to them, according to the world? Retaliate, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And this is the world's philosophies. But whenever we see here in this passage, if they would have responded in like manner, if they would have lashed out in anger, if they would have cursed and cussed against Nebuchadnezzar, lashed out with him, cried and pleaded and begged for mercy or any of those things, how would this story have played out? If they would have threw themselves on Nebuchadnezzar's mercy and bent to his, to his whims, how would it have turned out? Okay. Poor representation of God, right? They would have trusted in the king. They would have trusted in their own abilities to grovel or try to come up with a way to get around it. Their eyes would have been taken off of God and would have been put on their situation. And either they would have fell in line with all the rest of them, bowed, and Nebuchadnezzar would have said, I thought so. Get back in line with the rest of the clowns, right? Or they would have went to the fire and they would have been burned up. End of story, we'd never know anything about it, right? But because of the stand that they took, God used it in a mighty way to strengthen their faith. Do you think after they came out of that fire, that the next temptation or trial that came, do you think they were scared and quaking? They're like, you remember the fire? God brings us through that, he'll bring us through this, Right? And not only that, but as God brought him through all that, Nebuchadnezzar is looking at it, and he's astonished by it. He's amazed by what has just transpired. God is using it in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Whenever we retaliate against our enemies, whenever we hold grudges and bitterness and all these different things, we are harming ourselves, and we are hindering the work of God. Because God can use our actions and our attitudes in the trial to bring about a change in us, to bring strength in us, and to change those who have done us wrong. 
And that's what it's talking about with heaving coals of fire upon their heads, that God is much more capable of working in the heart and life of that person that's done you wrong than what you are in trying to resist or retaliate. Right? And so his attitude was changed from anger to astonishment. We come down to the first part of verse number 27. It says, And the princes and governors, captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed upon them. And so there was this whole group of people that was watching. If we saw back in verse number eight that they were watching to see if Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, to see if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would bow. They were saying, okay, they claim they serve God. Will they still serve him with the threat of the furnace? And they proved themselves there, right? But all of that same crowd and then some was there to watch them in their victory here. They were there to watch them come out of the fiery furnace. And so when we claim to serve God, people are going to be watching. But we're also going to have an audience whenever we go through the fire. People are still going to be watching. For us as Christians, that's part of what it is to be a witness. Right? I've said this in the past. I, it's not an original thought to me. I stole it from somebody else. But we don't have a choice in the matter of whether we're a witness. The Bible says, uh, and ye shall be witnesses of me, right? And so if you are saved, if you're born again, you will be a witness. It's just whether or not you're going to be a good one or a bad one. Does that make sense? And so people are going to be observing your life if you are identified with Christ. People are going to be observing your life, and they are going to find out what kind of God you serve and what he is capable of doing by the way that you live your life. And so... Uh, the way we choose to live, whether it's by faith, trusting in him and following him, or if it's in the flesh and doing our own thing, is a reflection on the God that we serve and it's sending a message to this world that we live in. And so what kind of message is your life sending those who are looking upon you? What is your life, what kind of witness is it for the God you serve? Is it accurate? Is it showing the God that we serve? Is it showing him for who he is and how great he is and how wonderful he is? Or does it betray him in our witness? And so as they are watching here, they see these men go through the fire and be unscathed. They're untouched by this fire. And so their witness holds true. Their witness shows their God for who he is, that he is a God that sustains, a God that provides, a God that protects, a God that can be counted on and trusted in, even in such horrible circumstances, even against such steep odds, their God can be trusted. And so, as I said there a moment ago, when you survive what you should or what was meant to destroy you, and they know it should have destroyed you, either they'll know it was your God that delivered you, or they're going to be coming and asking questions. You ever hear the statement, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you could go through this and be so strong, or I don't know how you can face this and make it through this. I've heard of people who have lost loved ones. I've heard of people who have went through diseases and trials and different things, and they did it by the grace of God. They did it, and their faith remained intact. 
They did it without losing their joy. It doesn't mean that they never wept. It doesn't mean that they never struggled. It doesn't mean that there wasn't hard times, but that God sustained them through the trial and people around them were watching. And they said it can only be by the grace of God that they can handle that circumstance in that manner. Right? And so how we go through things is going to be a reflection of our God. It's going to be a reflection of our faith or our lack of faith. And so it's going to be a huge testimony. The old saying goes, uh, a test brings a testimony, or there's no testimony without a test, right? And so they had a testimony. And so in the second part of that verse, it says that what these men observed was that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no hurt. It says that the fire had no power upon them. I don't think they even broke a sweat. Right? Imagine being in a fire and not even breaking a sweat. I guess it would evaporate immediately, wouldn't it? But it says the, the fire had no power on their bodies. It says their head wasn't or their hair on their head wasn't singed. I remember when we had the barbecue a while back and I overdid the fire and I opened it up and singed the hair on my head, my eyebrows. <laughs> I think I'm still growing some of them back. Right? It doesn't take much fire to singe your hair. You don't even have to get in the fire. You just have to get close to the heat and it will singe your hair. And it says that they were in the midst of the fire and it didn't even singe their hair. And on top of that, it says their clothes weren't changed, didn't burn their clothes. And then it says, neither did the smell of fire pass on them. They didn't even smell like smoke. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been around someone who smokes, or if you've ever been around even a campfire or a barbecue, the smell of smoke easily gets on you. You can tell someone has been around smoke. Someone who smokes regularly tries to cover it up. They'll spray themselves with cologne and a perfume. They'll try to chew it. You still smell smoke on them. There's ever been a car that's been smoking, it's going to be smoky till the day it goes to the recycling center. Okay, smoke quickly passes upon uh, fabric, upon people, and it stays. And so it says that not even the smell of smoke had passed upon them. The fire had no effect whatsoever, except for, like I said, burning the bindings off of them. I think that's pretty amazing. It's phenomenal that God has that kind of power, that kind of ability to protect his children in that manner. And so they came through the fire, no evidence of even being in the flames. You could have walked them straight out of there and no one would have even realized, no one would have even known that they'd ever been near the fire if they hadn't seen it with their own eyes. And so whenever we walk with God, God doesn't pull us out of the flames, charred and smoldering and halfway burnt. He doesn't allow us to be halfway consumed and bring us out suffering in a quivering mass of nothing here. But instead, God brings us through it and we come out of the fire better than we went in. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? He's not trying to leave us scarred to show us how rough we had it so that we can go and complain to everybody else and say, oh, my life's been so rough been one trial after another. Oh, it's been difficult, but God has sustained. That's not what God does. That's not the way that walking with Christ goes, because if we are walking with Christ in the trial, he uses the fire to refine us, 
not to wear us down, not to scar us, not to beat us up. That's the kind of God that we serve, that we can come out of the fire better than we went in. We can come out of the fire, as I said, refined and purified. And so whenever we are tempted to complain about how bad we've had it, I'm not saying that we minimize our problems or we pretend that they don't happen. But what I'm saying is if you are testifying on behalf of God, don't tell how bad you had it, but how good your God is that brought you through it, right? If you focus on the flames instead of what God has done in the flames, you're going to have a complete different perspective and it's going to hinder you from growing, right? Even whenever Job went through the trial that he went through, think about Job for just a minute. Whenever he went through the trial that he went through, he lost everything that he had, except for his wife. He lost his health. He suffered for quite some time with his health being depleted and all these things. He lost his wealth and his riches. He even lost much of his family. And then he sat for what could have been months, I don't know how long it would have been, weeks or months, listening to his so-called friends berate him and tell him what a wicked person he was. But then at the end, after the trial ceased, whenever the fire ended, God restored all that he had and then some, right? And then on top of that, he didn't just get back what he had lost and then some, but he came out of it with an increased knowledge and an increased respect for God and God's abilities, right? He learned some things through the fire. He learned some things through the trials. And I think sometimes we are so busy trying to get out of the fire that we aren't getting what we should out of the fire. We're too busy focused on trying to get rid of the trial that we are not seeking what God wants to teach us in that trial. Does that make sense to everybody? Because nothing that we go through, the Bible tells us that, and we know that all things work to get together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. If we are walking with God, if we are serving him, nothing that comes across our path, nothing that comes into our life will God let go to waste. He doesn't say that everything will be good, but that he can work it together for good. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is an incredible illustration of that. All of this that they went through, could you imagine the knots in their stomach and the anxiety and the fears and the different things? We can try to build them up as if they were some kind of super spiritual, super Christian or something. But if you have this threat against your life and you're standing before this heathen king that you know has no morals, no scruples whatsoever, and that he will throw you in the fiery furnace, if you are taking this stand, you're going to be a mess, right? They can stand there and say, our God will deliver us. And in the back of their mind, there's still going to be doubts because they're human, right? And so as they're going through all of this, forget the, the point that I was making there. <laughs> but as they're going through all of this, God is giving them the grace, the mercy they need to endure it. And God is showing himself, proving himself to them. And they are coming through that fire, having learned some great lessons about their God. I already mentioned how the next trial that they faced wouldn't have the same effect on them. They're not going to be as fearful and as worried and as doubtful and as concerned the next time the trial comes 
because they're going to say, if God can keep me through the fire and get me out of it without even smelling like smoke, this was nothing. That's how he grows us. That's how we grow in our knowledge, our understanding of him. That's how our experience helps to increase our faith. And so anyway, he doesn't leave us scarred, as I said, to show us how rough we've had it. Instead, he brings us out of it strengthened, purified. Doesn't mean that we're not still going to have physical problems. Doesn't mean that we're not still going to have some lingering issues about it. But I'm saying overall, he's going to uh, refine us, purify us through the fire. Okay? We can look at another example here. Jonah went into the whale. That was worse than a fire, wasn't it? Oh, no. The fire be the worst? Yeah. I don't know. It goes back to like the age-old question: Would you rather be burned alive or drowned? Right? Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just so weird and unnatural to get swallowed by a fish. But anyway, Jonah didn't go into the whale because he was following God. He went into the whale because he was running from God, right? And he came out of the whale. More than likely, his skin would have been bleached. And he would have stunk. Could you imagine what he would have looked like whenever he got puked up on the beach by the whale? And then he marched into Nineveh and he came in. They probably smelled him before he got to the gates. Came into the middle of the city and he was worse than a leper. Everybody was walking around and what in the world happened to you? He said, God sent me and I ran from him and I got swallowed by a fish. And so I decided I'd come. And they'd say, well, according to the evidence, you must be telling the truth. So let's listen to what you have to say. It must be serious, right? But Jonah's hardships and his trials came from his disobedience, not his obedience. And so he came through it differently, didn't he? But God still used it to teach him some things and to refine him, didn't it? We find that Jacob wrestled with God and he walked away with a limp. He left scarred from that one. But it was because he wrestled with God instead of walking with him, right? So there is a difference between going through the fire with God and God having to put you through the fire to correct you, right? And so whenever you walk with God and spend time with him in the fire, he refines, he purifies, he strengthens, and you come out better, not worse. If you are taken to the woodshed, as the saying goes, by God for disobedience, you're not guaranteed to come out quite as well. You might be puked up on a beach somewhere. So anyway, uh, verse number 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And so Nebuchadnezzar in verse number 15 had asked, Who is that god that shall deliver you? It seems like he's been educated, right? at least to an extent, because now he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I asked who the God was that delivered you, I found out. And so you see here that Nebuchadnezzar, a lost man, is praising God. That's interesting, isn't it? There's several places you find in the Bible where lost men praise God. Doesn't mean that they have been converted. Doesn't mean that they truly believe. No. Lost men can praise God. He's not been converted. He doesn't believe, but he gave praise to God just like he did 
back in chapter 2, in verse 47. You remember that after Daniel interpreted his dream, he praised the God of Daniel, and then he made an idol. Short-lived, wasn't it? And now he praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it hasn't taken just yet because we find in chapter number four the account of another dream that he has about the tree being cut down and the interpretation of the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his place as a king and he's going to behave like a wild animal for seven years to humble him because of his pride and his arrogance. And so he's a slow learner, isn't he? Can't really fault him. I'm a slow learner at times. Sometimes God has to to beat some uh, lessons through my head, right? And I think any of us could probably uh, relate to that. I don't know that any of us are necessarily speedy learners. But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar was praising God, but he was praising God because of the testimony of God's people. He saw God working in the lives of others. And he says, you sure do have a good God. He's not ready to say, I want him to be my God, but you sure do have a good God. I can tell God is working in your life. I can see God moving in this situation. I can see that your God certainly is with you. And if we take it in a modern day context, it'd be, I'm glad that your religion works so well for you. I'm happy for you, but I'm not ready yet to commit to it. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar's at at the moment. He gave God praise, but he is not ready to turn to God. And he's going to return to his same old tricks, just like I mentioned there a moment ago. And so God is not looking for an emotional or a reactionary proclamation. He is looking for true repentance. He's looking for a true change of heart and change of mind. And Nebuchadnezzar has seen something amazing, and he is reacting with an emotional response. That's all he's doing. He's saying, that certainly was something. It must have been your God. But God is after something of more substance than that. Okay? Something I want to bring out from this with Nebuchadnezzar here, there's a process that's unfolding. God is using Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the life of Nebuchadnezzar to bring the knowledge of God to a pagan king. And so it began with the Israelites coming down to Babylon. Daniel and his three friends here taking a stand and saying, we serve a God and we're not going to sin against our God. So we're going to even with, withdraw ourselves from eating the king's meat and these pleasant things that most people would be jumping at. We're going to choose to obey our conscience, obey the law of God's word. We're going to choose to do right. We're going to choose to act on principle. And Nebuchadnezzar is sitting back looking and saying, that doesn't sound like most of the gods that I'm familiar with. Their God actually makes them better people, actually makes them more principled, doesn't play into their flesh, into their lust and all these things. And so it marks them before him. He's observing them and he's wondering, he's curious, and he's saying, there's something different about them. There's something different about their God. I'm going to have to keep an eye on this. Then whenever Daniel is able to interpret the dream, he says, I knew there was something different about their God. 
their God has more power, more ability than any of the false gods and any of these other guys that I've been watching. There sure is something different about Daniel's God. Whenever Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down, he says, I haven't seen anyone who was willing to trust in their God to the extent that these guys are. No one is willing to put faith in a God. No one trusts in a God like they do. How is it that they have found their God to be someone so trustworthy? How is it that they can take a stand even against me, even at my threats of death? How is it that they can do that? They sure must have some God. Then whenever he throws them into the burning fiery furnace, in the back of his mind, he's still wondering, I've noticed a lot of things about their God. I wonder if their God that they're claiming will deliver them, wonder if he will. And then whenever they don't burn up and they come out of that fiery furnace, he's saying, sure is something about their God. But he knows all along it's their God. It's their God. He's observing it. It's coming into his mind and his heart. I wonder about the conversations that he had in regards to these things. I wonder about the thoughts that was taking up so much space in his head, about the nights that he spent on his bed, unable to sleep, pondering these things that he had seen and experienced as a result of God's dealings with his people. These things would have troubled Nebuchadnezzar. These were all seeds that were sown in his heart and in his mind, bringing to him a knowledge of God and who God is through God's people. And so as all this is going, Nebuchadnezzar is being challenged in what he believes. He's being challenged in what he understands. And he is opening himself up to the possibility that there is a God that he doesn't know, but that he needs to. There's a process unfolding. And God is using these people to be a witness to Nebuchadnezzar, and he is going to take a pagan king who is uh, egotistical, who thinks that he is a God, and he is going to take him and draw him to himself. And I believe as we get to chapter number four, we find that Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. Old Testament-wise, okay? He gets converted. He believes. And God actually allows Nebuchadnezzar, this king that has tried to burn these Hebrews, who has tried to cause all men to bow down to his statue, he allows this man to write a chapter of Scripture. Chapter number four is penned by Nebuchadnezzar. And he gives praise and honor and glory to God. And I believe that he comes to a saving faith in the God of Israel. And how does that happen? Because God is using his people to be a witness and to plant seeds, even in such a wicked and ungodly man, to bring him to God. And I say all that because God can still do the same thing in the heart and lives of the people who surround us. I've talked often throughout this study about how people are watching us. People are learning about our God through us. God is using us to plant seeds in the heart and lives of those that we're coming in contact with. He is using us in the things that we say, the way that we live, how we go through situations to provoke them to thought. And we have no idea what's even going on. Do you think that Daniel and these three Hebrews had any idea 
of what was going on in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. They probably said, he's a wicked king, he's a pagan, there's no hope for him. Just whenever we think that things are getting better, back to the same old stuff, right? But in his heart, God was doing a work. And God can do that in people in our lives as well. But here's the thing. We expect it to be quick. We expect fast results. If someone around us would say something like Nebuchadnezzar here and give God a little bit of praise and glory, like, oh, look at how far they've come. And then they go back to doing something stupid again. It's like, oh, well, false alarm. This is all a process that God is using to bring them along in the faith, to bring them to the place where they're willing to put their faith and trust in him. And he's using us to do that. And so don't get in too big of a hurry because God is patient. He is long-suffering. And he is working in the lives of those around us. We want to see them be saved immediately. And it's wonderful when that happens. But not everyone is going to have that happen. Some people are going to be like Nebuchadnezzar, and they're going to need several things to come along. They're going to need God keeping them up at night. They're going to need God uh, bringing himself before them and them rolling these things around in their head and saying, how is it that Peter can be faithful whenever these things are going on? How is it that Peter does these things? How is it that Jacques does? And they're thinking about the things that we have said and the way we represented God. And they're saying, I need what they've got. You understand what I'm talking about? This is the process that God brings people through. He's using our words, his word, our actions, to bring people along on this journey of faith. And as I said, for some, the road's longer than others. And so the things that you are going through may very well be the tools that God is using to bring people to himself. Do you ever think that maybe your trials could be the very things that people around you are needing to see? Needing to see God sustain you, bring you through, needing to see you keep your faith even in the dark times, and that is going to be the catalyst that they need to bring them to God? See, God is so much bigger than we give him credit for. He is doing so much more than we can ever comprehend or understand. All of the different pieces of the puzzle that seem completely disconnected, seem as if they're completely unrelated, and God has a way of bringing them together. And that's why he's God and we're not. And so we come down to verse number 28, the last part of it. He says that their stand, their faith that they had, changed the king's word. Remember I said that King Nebuchadnezzar was egotistical, that he was, uh, in a way, he was a maniac. I mean, he thought that he was God. And whenever he said something, it was law. It happened. No one was going to change his mind. No one could tell him otherwise. But God was able to change his mind, right? We look at the corrupt leaders that we have today, the politicians, all this different mess. Uh, things are really ginning up in the states right now with elections and all of this. And honestly, there's no good choices. I mean, all the politicians are corrupt. You see them bickering and fighting. It's like it's almost like they need a referee in a rugby match for like six-year-olds. That's the way that it's going. And you look at it and say, is, it, is that the hope for the United States? These guys over here that are bickering around like school kids? You don't see a whole lot of hope there, right? You see a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in them. And you question, can God do anything with that? Yeah, he can. Can God change their hardened hearts? 
Yeah, he can. Can God change the corrupt laws? If he wants to. He can. And so we need to be careful about thinking that the circumstances are too far gone or that the men are too wicked and too evil, that the governments are too corrupt, and that God is unable because God is able. And Nebuchadnezzar, one of the probably the, the worst examples that we can find, he says, because God's people took a stand, it changed the heart, the mind of this wicked king. Never underestimate the power of God's people doing right. They weren't marching on Babylon. They weren't picketing. They weren't protesting. They weren't doing all these other things. There wasn't strikes and set-ins. There wasn't uh, political campaigns. They were simply doing right. And God used his people to prove himself and change the heart and the mind of the king and to change the laws. It says that they yielded their bodies. We find that similar, uh, similar wording in the New Testament whenever it tells us to offer up our, our bodies, our lives, as living sacrifices unto God. Is that not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? They said we're willing to offer up our bodies even if it's a burnt sacrifice unto God. And God honored it and made it a living sacrifice. He did like uh, whenever Abraham took Isaac up to offer him up. And Isaac was meant to go on the, the fire. Isaac was meant to go on the altar. And God provided himself a lamb, right? Well, for these three Hebrews, they went through the fire and lived. God saved them through the fire, right? So in Isaac, he saved him from the fire. In Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he saved them through the fire. But either way, he is God and he's still good. And he demonstrated himself, they yielded their bodies, that they may not serve or worship any god except their own god. And so we come down to verse number 29. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar here, Therefore I make a decree. Be something to be a king, just going about making decrees everywhere. Telling everybody else what to do. Isn't that what it is? He's the king, and so he says, I'm going to make a decree that's binding on everyone in my kingdom. I wouldn't want that kind of power. And it'd probably drive me nuts if I had it because I have to think things through and try to figure out all the ramifications of every decision, right? So I hate making decisions. But Nebuchadnezzar, he can just throw them out there and say, I don't care what the, the fallout is. I don't, know how, I don't care how it affects everybody else's life. I'm going to make a decree. And this decree says that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill. There he is. His, if it's not throwing them in the furnace, it's cutting them in pieces, making their house a dunghill. What's with this guy? But anyway, many of us today as Christians would applaud this, wouldn't we? We'd celebrate it. Because here he is taking a stand for God and for God's people. He's putting protections in place and saying, if anyone speaks amiss against their God, then I'm going to be the one that's going to administer justice. If anyone speaks against God, then they answer to me. Wait a second. Do we need Nebuchadnezzar defending our God? Do we need Nebuchadnezzar setting people right, setting people straight? Do we need him determining these things? No. And the reason I bring this out is because there's been many governments down throughout time 
that have tried to legislate and tried to put out their commands and their edicts and their decrees about how people would worship and what people could do and trying to legislate people's relationship with God. And it is always wrong. Why? Because it corrupts Christianity. It corrupts belief. It corrupts our relationship with God. God doesn't need a government to defend him. Right? Because wouldn't it be a pretty pathetic excuse for God if he couldn't stand for himself and he needed Nebuchadnezzar's protection? Nebuchadnezzar coming out and saying, I'm going to be God's enforcer. I'm going to be his bodyguard. You remember whenever, back in the book of Judges, whenever Gideon was told to go out and destroy Baal and the false gods of the people of Israel at that time? And they came out afterward wanting to seek revenge against Gideon for destroying their gods. Do you remember that story? What did Gideon's dad say? Yeah, this God that you're trying to defend, if he's such a great God, why do we need to defend him? He was on the right track, right? They were on a false, they were serving false gods. And if that God had any power whatsoever, then surely it could defend itself against Gideon, couldn't it? What about the God that we serve? Do we have to be his protector? Do we need to seek the government's protections against our God? There was a big thing here in Ireland just a year or two ago about this uh, blasphemy law. You all remember that? No one remembers that as a couple years ago. It was repealing some sort of a blasphemy law. And basically what it was is if you said anything publicly against God that the government would punish you for it. And there was a lot of people saying, oh, we've got to keep this. We don't want people talking bad about God. Oh, wait a minute here. People don't realize how this plays out because if the government is the one dictating this, what happens when it doesn't go in our favor? What happens if they say the blasphemy law also covers Muhammad and Allah? And that for us as Christians, if we speak against Allah or against Muhammad and say that, Muhammad's not really a prophet, and all is a false god. Oh, that's blasphemy. Now it comes back on us. You see where the danger comes in that? Especially whenever Nebuchadnezzar is so unpredictable and changeable like he is, so emotional and irrational. And so I would rather God be God. I'd rather God be the one that stands for himself and is able to work all things together for good. The God that can bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fire unburned is able to stand up against Nebuchadnezzar or anyone who wants to say something bad about himself, right? And so be careful whenever you desire for the state to stand up for your God. God can stand for himself. Last thing that I want to look at, verse number 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province, in ba uh, in the province of Babylon. And so they were meant to be burnt. Probably these men who had been watching them at least thought that they would lose their position. But because they stood with God, God saw to it that they were promoted in the end. Living for God has its benefits. God can take care of us. God can give us the things that the world says they're in charge of. God can see to it to put us in the places 
that he wants us to be in. We don't have to worry about having to bow to the whims of this world to advance. Isn't that what the world teaches us? Unless you do things our way, you're never going to get anywhere. If you're in the business world, you have to uh, adopt the corrupt business principles that it goes by. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, right? And you're never going to get ahead as long as you are doing things morally, as long as you're doing things biblically. There's no way you're going to advance. There's no way that you're going to get ahead. The Bible tells us promotion comes from the Lord. God is able to elevate his people. He's able to put them where he wants them to be. Didn't he do that with Joseph? But would Joseph have been the prime minister of Egypt if he wasn't first sold into slavery and spent a time in the prison? It all goes together. God sometimes takes the non-traditional route to get us where he wants us. But these three Hebrews, at the end of all this, had been promoted, they had been set above all the rest. Not because they compromised. Not because they followed the king. Not because they were good brown nosers and able to get favor and pull in all these strings. And, but instead, because they were men of integrity and principle and they walked with God. And God rewarded them for their walk. If we serve God, the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? All these things will be added unto you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so God added some things to them. These are all principles we can live by. These are things that we need to learn from. So does anyone have any questions or any comments on this before we close up? Just one last thought that I saw there that I didn't bring out from my notes. If you jump ship in the middle of the storm, you're never going to get to the destination God's got for you. Right? Doc and Jennifer went on their trip to Dubai there a while back, and he hates turbulence. Was it turbulent? Yeah. Shook around. They were hoping you'd get a video. <laughs> but what would happen if he grabbed a parachute and jump out of the window about the time the turbulence started? Abandon the plane. Would you ever get to your destination? No. You'd end up somewhere else, right? Splash down the ocean somewhere, sharks are circling you. That's what happens to us whenever we decide to abandon ship in the middle of the, the storm or abandon the plane. We don't get to the destination God's got for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for the this passage, Lord, for these uh, three Hebrews for their faithful stand and for their example. Lord, I pray that we could just keep our eyes on you, Lord, that we could trust you through the storm and Lord, allow you to work your perfect will. Use us, Lord, to be a light and a witness to those who are watching us go through it. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, prosper us on the other side. Lord, we just ask you, Lord, that you would uh, guide and direct us. Lord, just draw us near to you. Help us, Lord, to be students of your word. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.